0: hey everybody welcome back to the sunday table podcast my name is nadiel um and i get the awesome opportunity to continue this teaching episode um in our sunday table podcast if you're new here for the first time we like dissecting key topics in the bible talking about life as a young christian specifically as a young christian since both eli and i are young Again, Eli isn't able to join me today, um, but this is a part two of a part one in a short, tiny series that I'm doing on early church heresy. Um, so in order to understand this episode fully, feel free to watch part one. Uh, in that episode, I break down what heresy is and its threat toward the early church. And so for this episode, um, I want—I'm—I I, really like this episode. I feel like I'm going to have a lot of fun with it um, because I'm just going to list off a ton of the heresies that the church faced while it was growing. And if I'm being totally honest, heresies that... Oh, I just got a text message. Let me mute my phone. Heresies that the church is um, currently maybe facing today even. So, you know, we're going to be learning a lot about... Oh, my goodness. There's another one. Okay. We're going to be learning a lot about um, a lot of the things that the church faced. And a lot of the heresies that I'm going to mention are... A lot of them are very nasty and just weird. And a lot of them are also... I kid you not, kind of relevant in our church today. Uh, Not like in, I don't want to say the church, but in the world today, I would say. Um, And so, yeah, all I wanted to do is just talk about the church's response to these heresies as well. So in episode one, Uh, We had a focus to that episode and in episode two, it's the exact same focus as episode one. The focus is that the presence of early church heresy shaped and strengthened the global church today. And I believe you're going to see that as we talk about it here. So in this episode, like I said, I just wanted to practically, I wanted to show you the, the rules and the precautions that the early church took to combat the heresies that they were facing. So let's just start listing them off one by one. And attacking them and talking about what these heresies taught and yeah. So the first one that I wanted to talk about is called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Now Gnosticism, uh, it starts off with a, with a silent G. So it's a very weird word to spell and a very, a very weird word to write. Um, but Gnosticism was a big big issue in the early church. It was a movement that was recognized both in and outside of the church. So Gnosticism was prevalent in the church and it was also prevalent like just outside. It was just like philosophy that people like to practice. Now, uh, the followers of Gnosticism were called Gnostics and these Gnostics believed in secret knowledge. The word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, again with a silent G, and gnosis simply means knowledge. So they believe in this secret knowledge. That's why they're called Gnosticists. Gnostics. Uh, Now, Christian Gnostics, that's what they called themselves, they often taught that Jesus had only entrusted his true and complete message to one of the apostles. Now, that apostle, what many believe, uh, could have been Thomas. Very weird. And that's why we have the apocryphal book uh, The Gospel of Thomas today, if 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 I'm not mistaken. So they believe that, oh, Thomas had the full message, um, Gnostics believed in, in, like, a spiritual messenger, that, that like, th- their theology is all out of whack. They believed in, like, a spiritual messenger, and that human beings were eternal beings locked in bodies of flesh, and they needed a spiritual messenger, that being Christ, to awaken the divine within them and give them a pathway back to God. So what I just said right there kind of summarizes their theology, and you're probably thinking, like, oh, this isn't that bad. Like, isn't that true? Like, well, let's be a little bit careful here. Let me let me, re, let me re-say uh, or say again what they believe. They believe in a spiritual messenger and that human beings were eternal beings locked in bodies of flesh and they needed a spiritual messenger being Christ to awaken the divine within them. Like, like, you're divine. Like, you're a divine being like, you need someone to awaken that within you and then you can get back to God in that way. Now, here's what that means. Let me break it down. They held a negative view of the material world and they believed that matter was evil and it was all created by accident. So there was no purpose behind creation. There was a Gnostic teacher named Valentinus, and he referred to the world as a, get this, as an abortion. Because the material world was evil, because we're eternal beings. And as a result, Christian Gnostics. they rejected the doctrine of the incarnation that God became flesh. Because how could God ever become flesh? Now, another characteristic was their asceticism earlier... Or, or, um, this other word is very weird, it's libertinism. Uh, so, it's a characteristic in their theology. Now, what does that mean? An ascetic, it, it, it's people who believe that they would, that they should punish the flesh in order to weaken its power over the spirit. And libertines, they took an opposite approach to the ascetics and they believe that since the spirit is the only part of our beings, They believe that they do whatever they want to do with their bodies and that it's irrelevant with what they do with their bodies. And, uh, you know, what they taught was widely followed because it allowed people to engage in all kinds of sexual immorality. In other words, these libertines kind of were just like, oh, like, it doesn't matter what I do with my body because I'm a spirit. Like, it's a spirit that matters. So I'm going to go ahead and sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. I'm going to go out and party, do whatever I want to do, and all this other stuff because it doesn't really matter. Now, that sounds kind of familiar to to, to, to what, what many people believe today. Gnosticism, I believe, it's it's a it's a heresy that that is still kind of pervading our world philosophy today. You know, especially and especially now with all this universalism and this spiritualism that like, oh you're divine and you just gotta awaken the God within you and all this other stuff and and do whatever you want with your body. You're free, like you're a spirit and all this stuff. That stuff like it sounds good and it sounds really like holy but really it's really dangerous and it's really counter to 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 um, to to what the bible teaches specifically about the part where they say that the that they held old negative view to the material world and they believe that 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 like cre- that that matter was created by accident like no god purposed the creation process God purposed that 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 we be the way that we are today, that the world be like the way it is today with these trees and these mountains and 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 the creativity and humanity. God purposed it to be that way. You know, the world is not an abortion. <laughs> you know, like 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 the the Christian faith is very, very dependent on the incarnation of God becoming man to die for the sin of the world, and that's something that the Gnostics rejected. Now, the thing about this Gnosticism is this secret knowledge, this idea that, oh, there's something more, like Jesus didn't teach everything, like there's something that he entrusted to one of his disciples. And so this secrecy kind of brought people into wanting to follow Gnosticism. We'll talk a little bit more about it later whenever we we talk about how the church combated this. Now, the next heresy that I wanna talk about is Martianism, Martianism. Now, Martianism is based off of a man named Martian. Now, Martian, M-A-R, or Marcian, M-A-R-C-I-O-N, he was raised in church, but he became an agnostic as he grew older. Gnostic essentially means that he, he either, believe, he doesn't necessarily believe in God, and he also doesn't necessarily not believe in God. He's just kind of there, you know? Uh, so he, he became agnostic as he grew older, and he separated himself from the agnostic pack of people because he developed his own theology that wasn't just anti-material, it was also anti-Jewish, okay? So though he had a heretical theology, he had thousands of followers, thousands upon thousands of followers. And see, here are some of his teachings. I'm just going to list three of the things that he kind of he taught and that he kind of did. So he taught that Jehovah is not the father of Jesus, Jehovah is not the father of Jesus. He taught that this Jehovah was arbitrary and vindictive, while the father of Jesus, the true father of Jesus, was full of love and grace. And that the father of Jesus is the true God who came to save us from Jehovah. So essentially, the New Testament God and the Old Testament God are not the same. The Old Testament God, and you kind of hear this a lot in teachings today, that the old, that, that in the Old Testament, God is mean and, and, and He's wrathful, and in the New Testament, God is very gracious and kind. That's not the case. It's the same God all throughout. In the Old Testament, the reason why we see the wrath of God is because His response to sin. In the New Testament, it's the exact same God because God is still equally as angry towards sin. He's bringing in a salvation plan. I believe that we really see the care of the Father through the Old Testament. It's the, like like we as Christians believe in the Trinity in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That God is three and one, and we believe that it like it, it it's the same God. It's not a different God in the Old Testament and a different God in the New Testament. That the Old Testament God is this like wrathful being, while the New Testament God is this sweet person. Unlike Martian where he taught that, that the father of Jesus, the one that Jesus prayed to, was actually the kind one, the good one, and he came to save us from this mean, nasty Jehovah. So you can see how this is kind of like tripping people up. Now, he believed that Jehovah created the physical universe, and he taught that Christ appeared out of thin air as a fully grown man. Okay, so, so that's where it gets a little bit weird. Um, so Jesus was not born. Again, kind of a rejection of, of, of the virgin birth and all this kind of stuff. That Jesus was just, boom, on the scene. And, and he was a fully grown man out of thin air, and he ever, like, as you can see, he butchered and cut out parts of the Old Testament and kind of made things how he wanted to make them. Now, what I'm about to say next is very interesting. Martian became the first person that we know of to compile a New Testament canon. Basically, he compiled a New Testament that fit his own theology. And the Orthodox Church, which we're going to learn about after or soon, they would respond by developing their own canon, which eventually led to the 27 books of the New Testament that we have today. So Martian was the one who was like, okay, here are the books that we need to follow. Here are the letters that we need to follow. While the early church was like, no, your theology is completely out of whack. Here is how we should truly follow. And that's how we have our theology today. Now, the next, or our canon today. Now, the next heresy, this one is like crazy this this one is just like ridiculous like it if this were like like that if it came out today i feel as if like this one is also it's crazy but it's also kind of sad because we kind of do see things like this today not necessarily in the church world but we just see it in our world today as a whole now this next one is called montanism Montanism. So it's based off of prophecies of a man named Montanus, and he had two women prophets with him, uh, and this was in the mid-2nd century or so. So Montanus had a group of followers, and they were called Montanists, and they were, these charis- they, they were charismatic in you know, spiritual gifts in the sense that they stressed the use of spiritual gifts and receiving direct revelation from God. So they believe that God directly spoke to them. A little bit sort of like Gnosticism in a way, where like there's this secret knowledge that God is revealing to this group of people. You know, this is actually a dangerous thing. And it's a dangerous thing that many try to claim today. They're like, oh, God spoke to me and he said this specific thing to me. And it's just like like the thing that that God claimed to have told them is completely contrary to what scripture teaches. You know, And, and Montanists believe this. They believed in receiving this direct revelation from God. Now Montanism, it appealed to those Uh, that thought the church had gone too far. So, the the Montanist belief quickly grew an audience of people who looked for a more genuine kind of church. Essentially, they believed that the church had traded spiritual vibrancy for institutionalism. How often do you hear that today? Like, oh, the church is just too, it's too rigid, it's too religious, it's too much. Like, we need something that's more freeing and more genuine. And while that may sound like a genuine pursuit, we have to be very, very careful that we don't trade orthodoxy for this passionate and religious pursuit because that's kind of what Montanism like kind of established. Now, Montanus, what they would do in their gatherings, their church gatherings, they would go into these trances and they would prophesy in their meetings. And, and, and this, is, this is where it gets a little bit weird. He only, Montanists only allowed his followers to eat raw foods and to avoid remarrying if their spouse had died. So they can only eat raw foods and you cannot remarry. Now, Tertullian, he's a person that I've quoted in previous episodes. Um, He was an early church Christian author. Uh, He was actually a fan of this movement for some time. Luckily, he didn't continue in that way. Uh, Something dangerous that Montanus would would do, the man who, who created Montanism, he would prophesy as God in the first person. He would prophesy as God in the first person. Now, he crossed the line, I believe, In fact, he crossed the line many times. But he crossed the line when he kind of told everyone that, like, if you reject his or his female prophet's uh, teachings and prophecies, that is to commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So if, if you don't agree with what Montanus is saying, and if you're saying it's not from God, then you're committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Essentially, Montanus, he claimed divinity and that his way was God's way. There we have, like, another false teacher rising up. Now, Martianism and Montanism... What they did, they were they were terrible, 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 terrible. You know, heresies that gained a large cult following. They were terrible, but they helped spur the Orthodox Church, the True Church, into creating the New Testament canon that we have today. The Church built up these guardrails of, okay, these heresies, these false teachers are getting ridiculous. So let's build something that we can safeguard the truth. Now, there were many more heresies that threatened the church. I just wanted to list just a few of these because these were the ones that I thought were very, the most interesting. And while the church was uh, in- internally damaged because of these heresies, it was also strengthened by it. Now, I believe that this whole heresy ordeal, it kind of reflects what Paul says in Romans 5, 3 to 5. And I'm going to read it right here, and you're going to see how it connects. Paul writes this in-, in Romans 5. He says, we also glory in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance perseverance character and character hope that's what that's that, that that's what god did in the church suffering produced perseverance in the church perseverance produced character in the church and character hope and then he says and hope does not put us to shame because god's love has been poured out into our hearts through the holy spirit who has been given to us i love that so Up next, we're going to be talking about the responses of the church to this heresy. Alrighty, welcome back. Let's get right to it. The responses of the church to this heresy. So, there are four things that the church did to respond to. Uh, the rise of heresy, and I believe that everything that they did was divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. So here's the, one of the first things that they did. Uh, they built a hierarchy of leadership. The second thing that, they, that they're recognized for doing is that they established creeds that protected core doctrine. The third thing that they did, they built a Holy Spirit-led canon of Scripture. And the fourth thing that they did, they had apostolic succession where bishops represent a direct, uninterrupted line of continuity from the apostles of Jesus Christ. So they built a hierarchy, established creeds, built a canon, and they had apostolic succession. Now, let's break each of these down, starting off with hierarchy. I'm loving this episode. I hope you're loving it, too. So hierarchy. Now, if anybody tells you that the church should not have an order in leadership or that it shouldn't have honor for leaders and that church should just be like, let's just all have fun. Let's all just gather and do whatever we want to do and, like, 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 like be in the presence of God. Like if anyone just tells you that, like run, run. Okay, the Holy Spirit intentionally meant for there to be order in the church. I mean, just read the just read the 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 letters of First and Second Timothy. Read the letters of Titus. Like 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 just read the New Testament letters of of First and Second Corinthians. Like there is an order to church. God is orderly. God is excellent in His work. Church hierarchy it helped save the church from heretical attacks. Now, how did the church hierarchy kind of go? So there were bishops, and these bishops were seen as guardians of the apostolic faith. These bishops, they were trusted with apostolic teaching being handed down from generation to generation. So we had the apostles, and then after the apostles, we had these bishops. Now, Christians were taught to trust their bishops. These bishops kind of governed churches. And these bishops, now there was was a requirement for these bishops, these bishops had to have been connected one way or another to the original apostles. Okay, so that's how you see that kind of seeps into apostolic succession, which we'll talk about in a second. But they had church leadership is what I'm trying to say. There was order. There wasn't just a free for all. Everybody do what you want. No, like they they followed the Holy Spirit's leading in establishing order. That's kind of what you see Paul saying in the majority of his letters. Like there is order. There should be order in the church. There should be leaders in the church and people should submit to these leaders in the church because that's how God intended for it to be. So they established hierarchy. Now the next thing that they established and this one is awesome. They established these creeds. Now, what is a creed? Basically, it's like a a, a paragraph summarizing the doctrine of the apostles. And this paragraph, it, it filtered out heresies using established doctrine. And they they like it, these creeds were, you know, just it's a paragraph, but it was each every, each and every single line of these creeds uh, combated heresy. Now, the main two creeds that we have and that we know of are the Apostolic Creed and the Nicene Creed, which were established, I would say, about 100 to 200 or so years after the early church um, era of, 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 of scripture, in a way. Uh, so in the year 200 or so, 300 or so, 400 or so um, AD. So these creeds were used to teach the faith to new believers. Um, and essentially, it was just a, 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 a Kind of like just a confession of what you believe in. And the Apostles' Creed was developed, uh, the, the one that I wanted to talk about specifically was the Apostles' Creed. And it was, I think I've already talked about the Nicene Creed in previous episodes. Um, maybe in uh, the Crucifixion of Christ, I think. But anyways, the Apostles' Creed, it was developed from Rome, and it was based on the clearly taught doctrine of the apostles, which were the things that Jesus taught. And here is the Apostles' Creed. If you are a Christian, you believe in this creed, pretty much, because this is what the early church taught, and this is what has been believed in throughout generation after generation. So as a Christian, here is what we believe, we believe, and here is what we confess. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Now, mind you, every single line of this creed, it like it, it is... It is intentionally written in this way. It glorifies God, it talks about Jesus, it talks about the Spirit, it talks about the death and resurrection. Everything that we see here, it is, it is, it is like, like, like intentionally detailed in its wording. So I'll repeat it again. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under pontius pilate was crucified died and was buried he descended into hell the third day he rose again from the dead he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of god the father almighty from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead i believe in the holy spirit the holy catholic or universal church the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. That is the Apostles' Creed. And as a Christian, it's what I confess. As a Christian, it's what you should confess. It's actually something that you should really look into. The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed has more to do with the divinity or the hypostatic union of Christ, the fact that Jesus was both truly man and truly God. So if you want to see what the early church believed about Jesus, check out the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. So they established these creed. And again, each and every single line of these creeds combated a heresy that tried to attack. So if there were heresies that denied the, the, the incarnation, we have the Apostles' Creed that talks about the incarnation. If we have heresies that deny Jesus being the Son of God, we have the creed that teaches that he is the Son of God. This is what we believe in as a church. Um, so the next thing that they established was canon. Canon. Cannon. Canon, C A N O N, not like a, like you're firing a cannon, not like Nick Cannon. Canon is essentially uh, like what is accepted to be true. Uh, like how, how can I how can I explain this? I'm, I'm a Star Wars fan. We have the Star Wars canon, and in the Star Wars canon, it's the first, it's it's the nine movies of the saga, plus the Clone Wars TV show, plus the Mandalorian, plus the book of Boba Fett, plus uh, right now the Obi Wan Kenobi show, and plus anything else that they give. It's canon. There are other things written and other kind of like shows that were made but they're not a part of the canon which essentially means they're not a part of the main story so the early church established a canon which is like this is the real thing like this is what we believe in and this is like Like, boom, this is what it is. We actually have the canon in our hands today through the Bible. So the early church, they accepted the Hebrew canon of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, it's the same. The Old Testament has not changed. The 39, is it 39? Yes. The 39 books of the Old Testament has not changed. Uh, The early church accepted it. They believed in the Old Testament. Now, a lot of Jews believe that the early church rejected the Old Testament. that They were completely against the teachings of the Old Testament because Jesus taught opposite of that. But that's not true. Jesus was a faithful Jewish man. Jesus practiced living what the Old Testament taught, what the law taught, and the apostles did the exact same thing. You can read about in the New Testament, Paul. Paul, he was a faithful Jewish man, you know. Even after he was saved, he was still a faithful Jewish man. Uh, he didn't rely on his Jewishness to be saved, but he he, he still was a traditional Jew, if that makes sense. Now, uh, what helped develop the New Testament canon was what Uh, the apostles taught and what they cited in their letters. Now these letters are, like the New Testament letters, are intentionally written in such a way to honor the Old Testament, to honor what Jesus taught, and also to honor what the other apostles and writers wrote. The apostles themselves, they would actually quote other New Testament writings and even claim that they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. For example, Peter, I think it's in First Peter, if I'm not mistaken, Peter actually references Paul's letters, and he says that Paul's letters were sacred scripture. And then we also have Paul, who actually quotes Luke in 1 Timothy five eighteen, essentially saying that that Luke, even Luke, is sacred scripture. So even during the early church era, with all the twelve disciples and 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 Paul, like they themselves understood uh, that there was like there was already an awareness that certain writings were on par with the Old Testament in authoritativeness. So so you know this New Testament. Canon this belief of the of the church was not something that came years after like it was present then like they had the truth Then I, d- I love that so much because there are a lot of people who say like how can you trust the Bible? Like like but but like the, like they they adhere to the Old Testament Which means that they adhere to the original teachings of God and then they adhe- because they adhere to it They added on top of it through what Jesus said and Jesus being God kind of like gave the, the authority to the apostles and he gave them the teachings and he gave them the words and, and what we see in the New Testament writings in the Gospels as well as in the letters and and in the, the book of Revelation, the the prophetic uh, writings, we see the teaching of Jesus like just explained, you know, like, ah, oh, that's why I love the Bible so much. So so let's talk about this canon. There are four criteria of canon. What, what makes something canon in the early church? And there were four criteria that the early church kind of developed. First, any book or writing had to have apostolicity. All the words that I'm going to say right now are going to be difficult for me to say. Apostolicity. They also need catholicity. Catho- catholicity. They also need relevance and they also need consistency. So for it to be canon, it needs apostolicity, catholicity, catholicity, you know, relevance, and then consistency. Now let me break down each of those. So apostolicity, what does that mean? The document had to have been written by an apostle or someone who worked closely with an apostle. Uh, yeah, uh, catholicity, this doesn't mean that we have to be Catholics, okay? Catholic was 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 a, a it was kind of a different term back then than how we see it today. This means that it had to be accepted by churches everywhere. It had to have that universalism to it. Like, it had to be accepted by everywhere, not just in some churches. So that's apostolicity. apostolicity, That is Catholicity. And then it also needed relevance, which means it had to be used regularly in the liturgy of the churches. Okay? And it also needed consistency. It had to be theologically compatible with the rest of the scripture. Okay? So the first New Testament writings to be recognized universally were the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And after that, it was the book of Acts. Hence, you know, Acts being written by Luke. It's the same. It, it's one story. Luke and Acts, if you didn't know, it's, it's, they were separated as two different books as time went on. But ultimately, it was all one big, fat, giant document of Jesus and the early church. So the first books recognized were the four Gospels, then the book of Acts, and then it was the letters of Paul. Now, the earliest canonical list that we have It's called the Muratorian Canon. And this is just crazy. It was dated to about AD 180 or so. So, okay. It had about 22 of the 27 New Testament books that we have today in our Bible. I don't know which books were left out, I apologize, but it, just know that they had 22 of the 27, and then that, that is the first, uh, the earliest canonical list that we have, but then over time, the canon started to take even more shape and more form by the early, early church, I believe guided by the Holy Spirit. Now the next thing that uh, helped uh, protect the church against heresy was apostolic succession. What does this mean? Well, let's talk about Gnosticism for a little bit. Gnostics believed that Jesus had given a secret message to one of the apostles, okay? One, like wrong, bad, and none of that. Because if Christ had a secret message, why wouldn't he have entrusted it, like that same knowledge to all the apostles who led the church? Why would Jesus intentionally cause, like it doesn't make any sense. Why would Jesus intentionally cause division between his 12 closest friends that have been with him for three years? Jesus wouldn't do that you know like Jesus made known to his disciples even John who was known as the one closest to Jesus he knew as much as Peter did you know like he like like they they were all together with Jesus so what does it mean apostolic succession the knowledge of Jesus was passed down in this manner it started off with Jesus and from Jesus the knowledge went to the apostles and from the apostles the knowledge went to the bishops so the higher, so 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 the order is Jesus then to the apostles than to the bishops. Now let me explain it in this way. Jesus taught the message. The apostles established the churches and 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 preached the gospel, the message of Jesus that He gave them to all of the churches. The apostles. uh, uh, started rising up, raising up these bishops who they themselves shared the message in their churches and in their areas. So everything is connected to Jesus. Everything is connected to Jesus. There is no secret message given to one of the apostles. If Thomas were here today, I believe in eternity, Thomas is still saying like, no, I don't have a secret knowledge. Like I I know what they know. Like I was the one who doubted anyway. Like I know what they know, you know? Uh, so yeah. So, uh, that's Those are the four things that the church did to, uh, as a response to heresy. It was, they built a hierarchy, they established creeds, they built a canon, and they had apostolic succession. Now I wanted to, to end off the episode, I wanted to talk about two men who taught the faith and they fought against heresy in the second and third century. Um, these are, I love these stories so much. Um, and they really blessed me and I hope it does the same for you. So let's just talk about it. The first man that I want to talk about who fought uh, against heresy and who taught the faith. His name was Irenaeus of Leons, or Lyons. He was from 130 to 200 BC, or A.D., so he was about 70 or so years old. Irenaeus of Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S. Very weird. So this Irenaeus, he was a disciple of Polycarp. Now, Polycarp, I know you don't know who he is, but Polycarp was uh, a disciple of John, actually. So the one closest to Jesus, under... John, or or, yeah, under John was this man named Polycarp, and under Polycarp was this man named Irenaeus. So he was directly connected to John, and then afterward directly connected to Jesus. So as a bishop, Irenaeus had to deal greatly with Gnosticism, this belief that matter was evil, and here's some of the things that he taught against this Gnosticism. He said this, I love all of his quotes, he said, God created the material world good, but it was incomplete. Even before the fall, human beings were destined to be united with the divine nature, but they were made for a time lower than the angels so that they could choose God freely before being made perfect. I love that quote of his. This next thing that he says, since humans use that free will to rebel against, rebel against God, however, creation, is now, creation now is not only incomplete, but also damaged by sin as a result of us rebelling against God. This is the reason why the world is so messed up. This next thing that he says I love, in the fullness of time, the word became flesh in Jesus. Jesus repairs the damage done by Adam by becoming the new Adam. And just as Adam carried all humanity in him when he disobeyed at the tree, so the new Adam, the word became flesh, recapitulates humanity through his perfect obedience in a different tree. So that's how he kind of combated Gnosticism while he was alive here on this earth. Uh, I love Irenaeus. I love his story. Like, Like, and everything he says here is just so biblical. Like, ah, you can't get more biblical than that. So essentially, one thing that he says is that Jesus had to be God to obey God perfectly. And he had to be man so that he could do it for us. That's a hypostatic union. Jesus was both truly God and truly man. Here's another thing that he says. I think this is actually from Irenaeus. He says, the son of God became man so that man could become the sons of God. So that's Irenaeus. This next person, I had mentioned him previously, and I think I've quoted him a few times in some of the other episodes that we've had. His name is Tertullian, Tertullian of Carthage. He lived from 160 to 225 AD. So that is 65 years old, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I think so. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. All right, so Tertullian, he's a man, interestingly enough, who was actually opposed to philosophy. Um, philosophy being the study of the fundamental nature of uh, knowledge, reality, and existence. He didn't like philosophy because he believed that philosophy tries to pursue knowledge outside of God. And during his lifetime, Tertullian writes, and he taught that God, this is so interesting, listen to this. During his lifetime, in 160 to 225, around that period, Tertullian, he taught that God is one what with three who's. One what with three who's. What does that sound like? That's the Trinity. Now, mind you, he said this before the whole Trinity like debate and the doubt of the tr- Trinity became like a real thing, and he so he write he wrote and taught that God is one what and three whos, based off of Scripture. And Tertullian he also wrote that Jesus is two natures in one, the hypostatic union. So what's crazy about that is that he seemed to have predicted the theological debates pertaining to the Trinity a hundred years prior to those debates even happening. That, like, that's a protective move by the Holy Spirit, that, that this, this early church influencer and leader taught hundreds of years before it even happened that God is one what with three who's and that Jesus was two natures in one. And then 100 years after that, these whole debates about the Trinity started to arise, but the church already had like, a truth established in Scripture that Tertullian kind of explained like, like, like himself. It's a protective move by the Holy Spirit. In fact, that word, Trinity, is actually coined by Tertullian himself. Uh, so yeah, that's all that I have for you. Oh, I love this episode so much. Uh, again, the focus of this episode, and I love talking about heresy, the presence of early church heresy shaped and strengthened the global church today. Thank you for joining. Um, thank you for listening. For those of you guys who have been faithful for since we started this back in January, thank you. You are awesome. Thank you for joining like message me, feel free to message me or Eli personally. And just, if you want to talk about anything pertaining to the podcast, let us know. Like we love hearing from it. I, I you know, people talk to me about it a few times and it's awesome. So, um, a few times here and there, and, and I just, I, I appreciate, you know, people mentioning it and how it's blessed them, or even if they may have doubts on the things that I've said, I'm totally open to that stuff as well. So thank you for joining, uh, follow us on Instagram at Sunday table. Uh, and yeah, God bless you guys. See you soon.